0: The New Statesman.
2: Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. I'm George. And I'm Freddie. And this is The New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing The New Statesman's left power list. Then you ask us about the National Conservatives Conference. We're delighted to be joined by a colleague whose voice some of our long-time listeners will probably recognise, George Eaton, our senior editor. George, you used to come on the podcast every week, I think down the line from the lobby back in the day.
1: That's right. Well remembered.
2: Yeah. How does it feel to be back in our brand new studio?
1: It feels good. It's certainly a higher spec than than before. (laughs) The podcast has come a long way.
2: Yeah. We used to basically be in a meeting room and then a basement room as far as I can remember, in your day. Anyway, the reason we have you here, thanks for joining us, is because you helmed the New Statesman's Left Power List, which is a list of 50 figures in Britain who have a significant influence on progressive politics and policy. And it's published in this week's issue of the New Statesman. So can you explain to our listeners why you decided to do this?
1: Yes. So the idea was conceived at the end of last year, when, as a team, we thought one of the defining themes of 2023 was going to be the prospects of a Labour government. And so it's proved, obviously, even before the local election results, Keir Starmer was the strong favourite to become prime minister. After those results, he's even more the overwhelming favourite. You're not seeing the Conservatives at this point make the kind of recovery that they need to stay in power. And that raises an interesting question, which is, who are the people who are going to shape that potential Labour government, both internally, shadow cabinet ministers, advisers, and also outside the party, trade union leaders, journalists, podcasters, and so on, and I think it's a good exercise, a good way to map power and where it really lies, and also to, to provoke discussion and debate. Because I think one trend has been the left and Labour have been scrutinised, really, because I think journalists got into the habit of focusing on the Tory civil war in some ways, understandably. And after the 2019 results, there was an assumption that Labour was out of power, certainly for the next five years, maybe a decade or more. And I think that journalists are playing catch up in an extent now that actually the people who, are potentially going to be running the country from the end of, the, of next year, haven't had as much scrutiny as they deserve in terms of what they do with power.
2: OK, and it's a really eclectic list. You've got Martin Lewis, J.K. Rowling, Aaron Bastani, Jeremy Corbyn. How did you decide who went where? It must have been a real headache. I mean, we all chipped in writing the um, bios, but you were the one who had to put it all together.
1: Yes. So I think we define power in, in two ways. It's the ability to change policy. Sometimes in a very direct way or an indirect way, but also the ability to change minds. Who's shaping debates? Who's changing opinions? And that's, I think, why you end up with this quite eclectic list, as you say. Also, I think it's a, it's a good example of the electorally powerful coalition that the Conservatives now face. In the sense, there are some people there who are radical socialists, Mick Lynch, RMT General Secretary Zara Sultana, the chair of the Socialist Campaign Group. No surprise to see them on the left list. But in the past, you might not have expected the likes, as you say, of Martin Lewis, Gary Lineker, David Attenborough to feature. And I think the reason why we've put them on is because they've all had defining clashes with the Conservatives. So Martin Lewis was very critical of Liz Truss's tax cuts for the rich during... The living standards crisis, particularly over energy, he explicitly said, look, I don't have solutions in my toolbox. You need state intervention here. This isn't something that a consumer champion Mm. can solve by simply telling people to shop around. And that, I think, moves him into leftish territory, at least, in terms of having quite a strong economic critique of the direction of the Conservatives. Gary Lineker obviously had a big confrontation with the government and the BBC over refugees and asylum seekers Mm -hmm. and has become far more outspoken in general on politics. And then David Attenborough, who may be seen by some as a fairly apolitical conservationist, I think moved into more explicitly political territory when he said in 2020, we need to rein in the excesses of capitalism if we're to halt the climate crisis. And I think Mm. when you have an economic critique of capitalism, that does generally, I'd say, put you on the left. Okay. And what trends did you notice when you were putting the list together?
2: Was there any part of the left that you thought was actually missing from sort of national life? I think we were desperately trying to search around for cultural figures who might be influencing younger people, for example. And also you said that sometimes podcasters and people who do more broadcast came above. Mm -hmm. Of the traditional columnists in this list?
1: On, on that last trend, I think in the past, and these kind of lists have, d- have been done before, often if they would be dominated by newspaper columnists mm. in the new Labour era, you would have had the likes of Andrew Rawnsley, Polly Toynbee, and so on on the list and one trend really now is the rise of podcasts as you say broadcasters James O'Brien of LBC is on there Alistair Campbell is on there Aaron Bastani, as you mentioned is on there Ash Sarkar Navarra Media is very much a video driven podcast driven platform and you don't have many traditional columnists on there Owen Jones is on the list obviously a Guardian columnist but much more than that in terms of he has his own video platform I think the other notable trend is the prominence of trade union general secretaries often overlooked in the past. Newspapers used to have a lot of Labour reporters, but obviously after the largest wave of strike action since 1989, I think it's right that we have four trade union general secretaries in the top 20. Then I think the other trend is there's, in terms of mapping the left now, you've got those who retain influence from the Corbyn era. Corbyn himself is is still on the list, I think, because there are still millions of people who look to him for political guidance, albeit he's at 29, a lot lower than he would have been in the past. Then you've got those who are the rising stars mm. in Keir Starmer's Labour. Rachel Reeves at number one, Wes Streeting's at number six. Um, you've got the likes of Bridget Phillipson and Steve Reed, names who will probably be familiar to listeners of this podcast, but might not, certainly not to the wider public, but who are increasingly significant within the shadow cabinet. There aren't many figures, I'd say, who can bridge the divide, if you like, between mm. the Stammerites and, and the Corbynites. One of the few who perhaps can is Ed Miliband, mm. who is an interesting example of someone who did move left with age and who said after after 2017 election, actually, I should have been more radical. So I think mm. but there aren't that many people in that space. The left has become and remains quite polarised.
2: Interesting. And Rachel, what did you make of it? I mean, why is Rachel Reeves at the top of the list and not the leader of the Labour Party? I
3: think, as our copy points out, it's because the cost of living crisis is the, the biggest issue of our mm. time at the moment and certainly will be for the next election. All signs point to that. She has a huge amount of experience as an economist at the Bank of England, at the US Embassy. So she has a huge reach. And she also, within her own party, has more political experience than the leader of the Labour Party at the moment. And her role gives her reach right across the trade union movement, as well as across business groups. So she just has a huge amount of influence at the moment and will be one of the biggest and probably the biggest decision maker towards the next election.
2: Freddie, what did you make of the list? There are, as George was saying, quite a few Corbynites still quite high up above some shadow cabinet members on there.
4: Yeah, and I think George is right. It's about that residual power that they've still got from 2019. It's about that influence among younger, slightly probably slightly more politically disaffected now that Corbyn's gone. And that that still massively shapes politics going forward. And if you look at someone like Mick Lynch, yes, of course, he's got this sort of hard power in leading the strikes and shutting down the train network. He's also got this soft power in terms of making strikes cool, making it popular. Popular, being able to communicate in the, in the media, being able to take down journalists and going viral, basically. So there are different forms of power in there. And I think one of the key differences is between the power that's residing in the Labour Party and also that more cultural, social media mm. influence that is actually more reminiscent of the Corbyn era.
2: And influencers in yeah, the right. influencer sense. Yeah. And have you had any feedback or even backlash on this list? I was at a dinner yesterday with some Labour and progressive policy people. And the name that kept coming up was, Al- was Alistair Campbell for different reasons. Yeah. Some absolutely love his podcast and are impressed with his post-political career. Others are sort of alarmed by the rehabilitation of his reputation as this sort of Polite Everyone. voice of reason. Yeah. What, have
3: you had any feedback? There's um, been some pushback, I think, from people within Labour uh, against people like Aaron Bustani, who they probably have taken a lot of criticism from. I think that I've been asked why there aren't more trade union leaders on the list, but I guess you'd expect that from Labour Party politicians. <laughs> um, trade union leaders. In, indeed. And a lot of the trade unions are actually vying for influence within the mm-hmm. Labour Party at the moment. So they, they want their name on there. They want to be known as having power and influence. So, yeah, along those lines, I guess. We should say that Owen Jones tweeted the list but said, how do I
2: get myself off this list? <laughs> <So> <laughs> Which I thought response. was a great response. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Freddie?
4: One of the interesting things that have come up is basically how you define being on the left. I, a few people said, why have you not included Lib Dems? I think one of the key things yeah. was their role in the coalition as well and their sort of economic framework as well going forwards. And I think on the other side of things as well, how left-wing do you have to be on the list? I did We did, launched it in Morning Call yesterday and lots of the responses from certain Labour member types and what have you is why is so many Labour shadow cabinet so far on the left because they don't see them as left wing so you are going to get this broader debate I think one of the problems or not problems but one of the debates comes around are liberals on the left is progressive does that progressive incorporate left and liberal is the key difference between socialist and liberal so I think these are the some of the key debates that we had and tried to manage as we created the list
1: yeah, yeah. I mean people are never going to agree on what it no. means to be left wing these are terms which come from the French Revolution and so you know <laughs> arguably we should have moved beyond them in some way, but we haven't. And people always like this idea that they define the left in a sense. So there are people who will say, the radical leftists, I don't recognise as part of my left, they're communists, they're Marxists. Then you'll have others who say, I don't recognise West Streeting as part of my left. I don't think. I think those who associate with the Blairite tradition are liberals. They're not social democrats. Certainly not socialists. And that—that's the argument that plays. Ed Davey is an interesting example. We debated putting him on the list, but I do think the Lib Dems certainly, in their current incarnation, are not a a left-wing party. Mm. I think you could have made an argument for someone like Charles Kennedy in the past Mm. being on the list because, to me, he identified with that social democratic tradition. He outflanked Labour on income tax. He outflanked Labour certainly on the on, on the Iraq war. So I think you could have made a stronger case. Ed Davey is someone more associated generally with the liberal wing of the Lib Dems, and that's why. It was it a surprise that he ended up in, in coalition with the Conservatives? He wrote
4: Contribute to the Orange Book. Yes. He's on that side of the party, as you say. But also, I remember interviewing him back in December, and he would not criticise the economic record of the coalition. He was lacking a reflection of why we're in the problems that we're in today. So Lib Dems will come out on the cost of living crisis quite hard, but they won't, I don't think, or Ed Davey didn't, reflect about what's brought us to where we are today.
2: Is this just the first of many lists?
1: Yes, I think we'll certainly repeat the exercise. It's always fun to see who's risen, who's fallen, who's not on the list anymore. And it is very much a snapshot of the yeah. present moment. I mean, an interesting example is when Nicola Sturgeon was first minister of Scotland, mm. you would have had her in the top five, certainly. Her successor, Hamza Yousuf, is number 13 for obvious reasons. SNP's influence much diminished. Scottish independence isn't on the agenda. So I'm sure there'll be lots of movement over the next year. And I think we will be doing more lists of this kind, but I don't want to give them away here lest other people get there first.
2: I can't believe you wouldn't give the New Statesman podcast the exclusive, George. (laughs) Well, (laughs) thanks for coming on and discussing it. And I hope you'll stick around for the second section. After the break, we'll answer your question about the National Conservatism Conference. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
0: From the New Statesman comes World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. From Ukraine to Brazil, DC to China, we cover the stories that matter in a world that's constantly changing. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Join us. Just search World Review wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You Chime ask in. Us. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll get there next time. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Our question this week is a bit of an amalgamation of questions about the National Conservative Conference that's been going on the past few days. So I'm going to roll them all into one. What is it? What does it mean for Rishi Sunak's control of the party and also the Tories' future? I think, Freddie, you've been hanging around there a bit, haven't you? Yeah,
4: Yeah, over the past three days, it's just been interesting. Yeah, I think, first of all, we've got to separate out the National Conservatives from Mm -hmm. the Conservatives. It wasn't a Conservative Party event. It was the National Conservatives, which is a broader sort of global project. And it was basically arguing that the state should be much more central uh, or the nation should be much more central to Conservative politics. And then from that, you get many variations. I think how it relates to the Conservative Party has been very interesting because you had senior Conservative politicians like Michael Gove, Suella Braverman, Lee Anderson was there, Lord Frost, all come to this conference and basically say completely different things. So there was a inherent incoherence about the three days, because what you've basically got is a criticism of what they would term as some you know, global liberal elites, which can go down the cultural route. You can basically say, actually, we've got these wokers who are infiltrating the BBC and everything along that. Or you can go down the criticism of the neoliberalism, the economic route. But the Conservative Party politicians who came just didn't know what they thought. I mean, individually they did, but collectively they didn't. You had Michael Gove making some serious criticisms of austerity, of the economic framework that we've now got. But then you also had Jacob Rees-Mogg and Lord Frost going, we actually need to slash taxes, we need to slash regulation. So they're, they're just... They're confused. So that makes me doubt or be skeptical about whether this ideology can take over the Conservative Party. I mean, we ran a great piece by Andrew Gamble, and he basically argued that Liz Truss and Boris Johnson are incarnations of national conservatism, but just different forms of it. So I mean, I think if you do take such a broad definition as that, you can throw them all in together. Mm-hmm. But how they're policy or their thoughts on national conservative manifest in economic policy is yet to be seen.
2: Mm, It's really interesting because Andrew Marr, our political editor, has been talking about this conference for a while. And his read was basically that it's this inherited sort of nativist politics from the US. There's been national conservatism conferences in other countries before now. And actually, conservative politicians have in the past been reprimanded for attending them. Mm.
4: Yeah, I think the Republican comparison is very interesting. People there are very sceptical of that, as you'd imagine. But I also think it's slightly too easy just to say, OK, this is just an American import. They're trying to bring over their form of politics because national conservatism is quite easily retrofitted for the UK. I think people always argue that religion is the overarching theme of American politics. That's why you get the disagreements around abortion and other things. And we don't have that in the same way here. But we do have other issues. We do have things like Brexit, immigration, these sort of undergirding themes of politics, which National Conservatives could just retrofit and apply to the UK.
2: And is it a bit of a headache for Rishi Sunak to have these noises off in a conference centre very near to Westminster? You had such senior politicians there. Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, Michael Cove, who you mentioned, and also,
3: you know, the vice chair of the party, Lee Anderson. Indeed, yeah, and particularly considering some of the things those politicians have said, that I think what I think I'd agree with a lot of it doesn't make sense, and I think some of that relates to how Brexit makes a, it makes a different point to different people. So I think you had a little bit of that, but I also think that considering you had the Home Secretary kind of making a case of how she should do her own job as a kind of kind of coded message to her colleagues was very strange. Oh but goodness.
1: who's going to build these houses? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, the houses. Um, maybe so going to resign? You do you think?
3: Resign? Is she planning? Do you think that's where it's heading? That's that, That's something that's put around quite a lot. But I think it's. I haven't seen that would necessarily happen. Yeah. The way Number Ten kind of reacted to some of the claims that she made was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So they were insisting that they had seen her speech and passed it, and it was all okay and all fine, even though it was seen as quite a warning to her colleagues. This kind of assertion that the government should manage legal migration more effectively. But then I think you had people like Miriam Cates who was making an argument against some of the things that David Cameron and George Osborne have done like Thank the you. two child limit. That's something that effectively this government has done whilst in this period in office. And similarly you had Danny Kruger kind of making similar criticism. This is, all these things are the conversations that you would be having a year into opposition, not while you were in government. So yes, it's problematic for Rishi Sunak if he doesn't want everyone to just feel despair within his party about their yes. chances at the Next election.
2: Yeah, you mentioned Braverman's comment on the legal migration, mm-hmm. and I think it was on the same day that she made her speech saying that we should train Brits to do more fruit picking and being butchers and lorry drivers and things. That actually the seasonal workers scheme was extended. I think there's 15,000 more visas being given to seasonal workers on that scheme this year. The direct contradictions in cabinet are playing out at this conference that's nothing to do with the party or official government business. It's quite strange. It's
3: chaotic, and yeah. then
2: you have Rishi Sunak's spokesperson, having to say, "Well, no." The Prime Minister doesn't agree with Danny Kruger's comment that I think it was, what was it? Mothers and fathers sticking together for the children is the only basis of a functioning society. This stuff is a real distraction and kind of sounds a bit crankish and old-fashioned probably to the casual observer. Not that anyone will really casually be observing this.
3: <laughs> but if you Rishi Sunak and you've got an election, what, in the next year or 18 months, do you really want to start a fight with loads of people that you're on mm. your front bench when you've just achieved some semblance of unity? I can understand why he why the Prime Minister wouldn't want to roll into these problems. So I'm not sure what he does, really. And
2: it comes off the back of the CDO conference, which was over the weekend, the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which is a bunch of Boris Johnson supporters, really, but also a voice for perhaps the grassroots of the party who have always felt a bit neglected by Mm -hmm. the centre, the people who want to be able to elect their own party chair. What does that say? Is that a different Mm -hmm. strand of conservatism? Does it show Mm -hmm. that the party is having a bit of an identity crisis?
1: I think it's a fascinating development. I've used this phrase about them: their Tory Ben. Nights in mm-hmm. reference to, to, to Tony Benn, uh, the Labour Socialist, because one of his big projects was to increase internal democracy in Labour to allow the leader to to be elected by activists, to allow party members to have the say over policy at the conference and for that to then be binding on the leadership and other internal reforms. And you're now seeing a conservative version of this. The Conservative Party, as we all know, traditionally, much a much more hierarchical party than Labour. Very little internal democracy. They didn't even get to elect their own party leader until the start of the noughties. If you go to a conservative conference, they don't really have votes on policy, party p- policy is dictated by the leadership and other senior figures, the members don't get a look in. And this, I think, is an inevitable outgrowth of Brexit, which is obviously a referendum, direct democracy. You're now seeing that transplanted in- into the Conservative Party. And their view is we've been neglected. We didn't get a say over a and we want a much bigger, bigger say in-, in the future. And that's quite a tough current to control after, I think, you've set the precedence of Brexit. And given that the Conservative Party needs these activists, it's not a mass membership party, it does need people to campaign for it. What you need is an individual who can rise above it. Can Rishi Sunak do that at the moment? I don't think he can. And I don't see a kind of Cameron figure waiting in the wings. What's striking is just how weak the Tory moderate pushback has been, if you like. I think if the Conservatives had any sense, I think the figure they need, assuming they lose the next election, is someone with some of Cameron's socially liberal instincts, but far more left-wing on, on, on the economy and public services. Cameron was essentially thatcherized on the economy of his embrace of austerity. You need someone who's going to recognise the need for greater state intervention, higher public spending, more progressive approach to taxation, which is you can incorporate into a Conservative framework. But I don't see that individual at the, at the moment. Part of the problem is that a lot of the strongest voices for moderation in the Conservative Party are gone. The likes, of, the likes of Roy Stewart, Nicholas Soames, who was a One Nation Tory, people from that tradition. No, uh, Flash has been
4: led by Matt Hancock this week, the independent MP. So just to speak to your point, <laughs> yeah. he's been the one been speaking out saying this has gone too far. We need to be slightly more, we need to be cautious about what we're saying at National Conservative Conference and the CDO. So yeah, yeah. just support your point.
2: So which wing is in the ascendant then? Or is it just a bit chaotic at the moment? We can't tell. I
4: think, yeah, Rachel's completely right. They're already looking to beyond the next election. Bravman's speech could have completely been read as a leadership pitch. Mm. That's she how, talked
2: about the backstory. Uh,
4: it was just, she went through and just ticked them off what you normally do. <laughs> this is my backstory. This is what I want to do with the party. And this is why we should all come together in the end. So it was just, it was, a, you know, it was a 101 of how you deliver a leadership pitch. Mm. So that's really tricky for Rishi Sunak because it just means that People aren't behind his project and they aren't necessarily going to get out there in the next 18 months and try and salvage some sort of, if not victory, then a lesser defeat. So I think it's really tricky. I mean, going forwards, just to speak to George's point again about needing that sort of economic framework that speaks to what Boris Johnson captured in 2019 with more funding for the hospitals, more police, basically saying we're going to try and fix public services after nine years of austerity. Is that there yet? Yeah, I don't think so. And part of the reason for that is that everyone's focused on these cultural and national issues. that they, they, they didn't speak about economics at all in, in three days of national conservatism because they haven't actually decided what they think. So they can't talk about that. The cultural issues push out the economic issues. And then the voters are left thinking, OK, well, sorry, we're, we can't afford to do what we used to be able to do two years ago. And then you're off talking about the degradation of national character. It's the slightly dissonance there.
2: Yeah. And they have been in power for 13 years as well. They must have something to do do with the national character at this point. But I thought it was really interesting from your first dispatch from the conference, you said you didn't hear any mention of the NHS or any mention of the economy like you just said, which feels detached from reality.
3: Yeah, it's like the elephant in the room from the speeches that I saw. It was that you, there was no talk about the cost of living crisis, no talk about public services generally. A lot of talk about law and taxes, but yeah, none that's of the those irony of
2: these conferences, though. They are really globalist in character, aren't yeah. they? They don't really home in on the country that they're in the sort of specific issues, which is an irony because they're railing against globalisation in a sense. Well, I'm sure we can discuss this a lot more on future episodes. Thanks so much, George, for joining us. Thanks, and Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com slash us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward, Rachel Wearmouth, and George Eaton. We'll be back on Monday discussing why some parts of Westminster just aren't working. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video of this podcast and past podcasts on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Adrian Bradley.
0: Botox
3: Cosmetic, auto botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.